The Dow down today more than 1,000 points. What's going on? The lead starts right now. Stocks tumble as Americans lose money in their investments. Should you really just ignore today's drop or is something more serious going on? Plus, Russians on the run. Only CNN makes it inside a city that Putin's army controlled just days ago. See what they left behind after Ukrainians pushed them out. Plus, a Twitter whistleblower added again, warning of security threats within the social media network and that Twitter employed a Chinese government spy. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start with breaking news in the money lead. One of the worst days of the year for investors. Stocks taking a remarkable tumble. The Dow closing down more than 1,200 points on the heels of today's inflation report. You hear the bell there, the closing bell. Fears of a recession in the air. Let's get right to CNN business correspondent Rahel Solomon in New York. Rahel, how bad and how serious is this damage? Uh, Pretty serious, and it was bad and only got worse throughout the day as losses accelerated. To put this in perspective, Jake, this was the worst day for the Dow since June of 2020. So this was a historically bad day as investors digested this morning's inflation report. I want to take you to the Dow closing lower by about 4%. uh, The S&P 4.3% and the Nasdaq about 5.2%, let's call it. So why is all of this happening? Well, that inflation report we got this morning, which, by the way, comes a week before the Fed is set to meet again. But it showed that while energy prices are declining and so inflation seems to be easing a bit slightly and a lot of key categories, Jake, inflation continues to accelerate categories like shelter, categories like food, categories like medical care costs. So that is really concerning. When the Fed meets next week, we already knew they were planning to raise rates, but you get a report like this and it all but guarantees they will raise rates up by likely another aggressive three-fourths of a percent. And the reason why the markets are reacting this way is because the more aggressive the Fed has to be, Jake, the greater the likelihood of a policy misstep, i.e. a recession. So, Rahel, should we expect another sell-off tomorrow or, or could we see a rebound? It's so hard to tell. I think the only thing we know for sure is we're in for a lot more volatility until we get to the other side of this inflation picture. Uh, We have that Fed meeting next week, which we expect to be uh, quite active in the markets. Right. So I think until we're clear of this inflation, we're likely going to be in for some some bumpy rides for sure. Yeah, I want to bring in uh, CNN economics commentator Catherine Rempel. Catherine, uh, economists seem to think the worst of inflation was behind us. But the report out today Uh, showed it's still a persistent problem. Uh, So how did economists get this wrong? Well, I think economists were mostly responding to the decline in gas prices, which have, in fact, gone down. Those were reflected in today's report. The problem is that so many other categories, of course, were up. Uh, Rents were up. A lot of other core uh, consumer purchases have also gotten more expensive. And I think in general, it's just been very difficult to predict what the trends will look like month to month or even especially several months out in the future, given the uncertainties presented by supply chain issues, given the uncertainties presented by, of course, the war, uh, the unprovoked war uh, in in Ukraine, as well as a lot of other factors um, like the the vagaries of, of how consumers interpret um, the, the rhetoric they hear, the political rhetoric and otherwise. So, you know, it's always, the expression is it's, it's always to make predictions, especially about the future. Um, but it's especially, especially difficult right now as we come out of this pandemic. Rahel, it, it seemed as though economists were bullish that the U.S. 
was not going to go into a, a, a recession, uh, that the, the job uh, numbers are so good and that prices were starting to go down. Does this news today affect economists' thinking, uh, Rahel, on whether the U.S. is headed for a recession? Well, I think you're absolutely right that there had been some complacency in the market that uh, because we got that job report that showed job growth was still strong but starting to slow and because we had gotten some inflation reports that showed easing largely because of energy, as Catherine pointed out, that maybe we could be in for a soft landing. I think it's still so hard to predict. But one thing that we're seeing in this report is that inflation in many categories is proving to be quite stubborn and quite sticky. And that's going to be a problem for the Fed. And so rates right now, Jake, to put this in perspective, are about two and a half percent. We expect that to reach about four percent by the end of this year. So we are uh, still in the early days of this process. And Catherine, how do you weigh the, the good, solid employment numbers with the less solid numbers we've seen when it comes to inflation? Well, it's funny. Uh, both of those sets of numbers suggest um, an economy that is, is hot, right? Um, the pricing data suggests that consumers are still spending and they're still bidding the prices of the goods that they buy higher. The job market data suggests employers are still hiring. They're, they're still uh, doing their best to find workers. The wrench that gets thrown in all of this is how the Fed responds to all of this data. So it's not the inflation data on their own that put us at risk of recession. It's the fact that the Fed will have to raise rates a little bit more than perhaps people had hoped to get inflation under control. And because it is so difficult for them to carefully calibrate how much uh, they raise the cost of borrowing, so that, because, of course, they want to do it just enough to, to sort of temper demand, to, to, to cool inflation, but not enough to tip us into recession, because it's very difficult to, to do that in sort of a fine-tuned manner. Um, the fact that we had this report today suggesting that consumers are still going out and, and bidding up prices means that they will probably have to slam on the brakes a bit harder than they might have otherwise done. That is essentially the link between the data today and the increased risk of recession. It's not the inflation on its own. It's essentially how the Fed responds to that risk of inflation um, and, and how much they have to tighten monetary policy. All right, Catherine and Rahel, thanks to both of you. Turning now to our world lead. Minutes ago, Queen Elizabeth's coffin arrived at Buckingham Palace. It's a symbol, obviously, of the British monarchy known around the world. King Charles III and other members of the royal family watched on. As a guard of honor, received the Queen's coffin. The coffin will stay at Buckingham Palace overnight in the Bow Room, where the late Queen Elizabeth once hosted American presidents and dined with foreign royals and welcomed professional athletes. Tomorrow, there will be a silent procession through the streets of London as the Queen's coffin moves to Westminster Hall, where she will lie in state for four days before her funeral. CNN's Bianca Nobilo is outside Buckingham Palace for us right now with more on the final preparations underway and the important visit made by King Charles III today. Twenty-one rounds to salute the new monarch. King Charles continues his tour of the United Kingdom, arriving in Northern Ireland to an upbeat crowd. Expected to build upon the foundations of his late mother, the new king needs to be a source of healing. Greeting the public in Belfast and meeting with leaders at the Hillsborough Castle Royal Residence, where Queen Elizabeth II played a part in cementing the peace following decades of deadly violence. My mother felt deeply, I know, the significance of the role she herself 
played in bringing together those whom history had separated and in extending a hand to make possible the healing of long-held hurts. In a sign of unity amid a fractured past, the King met with the Irish President and Northern Irish leaders and lawmakers. Queen Elizabeth showed in a small but significant gesture, a visit, a handshake, crossing the street or speaking a few words of Irish can make a huge difference in changing attitudes and building relationships. Chants of God Save the King greeted the King and Queen Consort to St Anne's Cathedral in a service of reflection that brought together politicians and community leaders. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit be with you and remain with you always. Amen. In Edinburgh, mourners streamed by her coffin adorned with the Scottish crown. One last look before she's flown home. The King now back in London to greet the arrival of his late mother's casket at Buckingham Palace. She'll be moved to Westminster Hall on Wednesday, where the public is already queuing to say their final goodbye to a leader who united the kingdom. Jake, we've had a clarification on the list of invitees to the funeral as well. A UK senior government source has told CNN that Vladimir Putin will not be extended an invitation. They're still finalizing the rest of the guest list, but we understand that heads of state or officials from Russia, Belarus for its support of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and Myanmar for its treatment of the Rohingya people will not be extended invitations. Now, these invitations to the funeral are extended from the royal family, but taken on the advice of the government. And this should come as no surprise. Clearly, Britain has been one of Russia's strongest opponents, Ukraine's strongest supporters, and has supplied them with over £2 billion worth of military aid. Jake. All right, Bianca Nobilo, thank you so much. I want to bring in British broadcaster and CNN contributor, Badisha Mamata. Uh, Badisha, most of us were not alive the last time a reigning British monarch died, which was 1952. So put into context for our viewers who don't remember 1952, just how ceremonial the next five days are going to be and how important they'll be uh, to the British people. They're extraordinarily important because exactly as you say, in reality, very few people have seen anything like this. So what are their references going to be? Game of Thrones? Films about Elizabeth I? Medieval sagas? Well, a lot of the pageantry, a lot of the language, it comes from the 15th, 16th and 17th centuries. So any history buffs, ancient painting buffs, they're going to find this very, very familiar. What is all of this? It has a powerful emotional component. We want to celebrate together. We want to dress up. We want to cry and laugh together. And we love, all of us love the horses, the carriages, that slow-moving, beautiful hearse draped in the flag, the twinkling lights. That's why we're in front of the splendor of Buckingham Palace right now. People need and desire the beauty and solemnity of pageant in order to give events meaning. And, and this is not just a, a, a moment uh, of pageantry. We've heard suggestions of leaving the Commonwealth from the leaders of New Zealand and Australia, Scotland and Jamaica. How much do you think the Commonwealth will now shrink in size and in power 
under King Charles III. Let's not think of it as the Commonwealth shrinking. Let's think of it as all of these nations moving towards whatever it is they want. Equality, liberation, independence, sovereignty. There's lots and lots of words for it. In a very strange sense, I feel that the word Commonwealth is associated with Queen Elizabeth II. It's a 20th century term. It marked a, tr a transition away from the colonization period. It was a sort of a euphemism around decolonization. And now all of these countries have a right to hold a plebiscite or, for, or a referendum. They have a right to ask themselves, what now? Let's look to the future. Who do we want to be? without thinking about how we look in the eyes of the world. I think that's natural and good, and both Queen Elizabeth and King Charles III will understand that. We have to move out towards the 21st century, and this is an opportunity for a reset for everyone, including the royal family. Well, I, I agree with the sentiment, and obviously self-determination is incredibly important. Are there going to be uh, politicians and others in the UK uh, whether King Charles III or, or others in his court or, what, or people in the government who will try to take steps peacefully to, to keep the Commonwealth unified as much as possible? That's a fantastic question. And yes, I'm sure there will be movements which are pro-Commonwealth, which are pro the existing friendships and ties between nations. Maybe what you'll have is a series of moving alliances, but Above all, exactly as you've been saying throughout, the message of King Charles III has got to be towards pushing back all of those bad actors, all of those sloganeering, coming out of left and right field parties, whether they be nations or individuals or political movements, which seek to drive us apart and which foster fear and hatred of the other, which work against universal human values. I think King Charles is very passionate about that, and he may have to couch that in softly, softly terms, talking about hope and unification. But what he's really saying is, don't allow unrelated third parties to push us away from each other towards superstition and fear of the other. Padisha Mamata, thank you so much. Appreciate uh, your time today. Tune in tomorrow for the Queen's final journey through London as the United Kingdom Honors her life. CNN special coverage begins at 8 a.m. Eastern. This hour, CNN is also in Ukraine, where Russian forces are on the run. Only CNN made it to the town of Izium, just recaptured by Ukrainians. See what the Russians did before they were chased out, plus taking a stand. Union workers across the United States on strike as others also threaten to join picket lines ahead. Their demands and are they getting results? Stay with us. In our world lead, the war in Ukraine may be backfiring on Russian President Vladimir Putin. Nearly 50 Russian local and city leaders are calling for Putin to resign, that number doubling from just yesterday. The calls for resignation come as a Ukrainian military source says almost the entire region of Kharkiv in Ukraine has been liberated from Russian control. CNN's Sam Kiley is the only international correspondent to make it inside the town of Izium, which was just recaptured, where he got an exclusive look and what the Russians left behind as they ran out in retreat. It's been a stunning advance. Ukraine's rout of Russian invaders has recaptured 6,000 square kilometers, Ukraine's president says. This land was held by Russia just a few days ago. 
Now it's providing a rich harvest to Ukraine's army of abandoned Russian equipment. The Russian Z symbol painted over. The guns ready to kill Russians. The recapture of Izium, a strategic prize, accelerated by precision strikes from new artillery donated by Western allies. This was clearly hit with a very large piece of artillery or an airstrike. And you can see how important it was strategically, clearly a former school. There's a kind of children's painting on the wall. But it's also got these large holes which have been dug to store tanks or armoured personnel carriers, even artillery pieces. There's one, two, three, four, five. We were shown into a command centre in the bunkers of an old factory. So down here we've seen there's a medical facility, call it something like that, inside this bunker. There's a barracks. A Russian soldier is sleeping here. Yeah. The top brass here slept in beds made of old doors. And then of course the command centre here. As I walk along here, it's absolutely extraordinary. There are the different labels for the different roles of the senior Russian officers on these school desks that have been arranged in this bunker in an old, what looks like a brick factory. Now, they were safe down here, underground, but they didn't feel safe enough to stay in Izium. And what's critical, ultimately, for the Ukrainian armed forces is making sure that the senior officers of the Russian army stay on the run. If they do that, the Russian armed forces will collapse completely in Ukraine and potentially threaten the longevity of one Vladimir Putin. This couple celebrated liberation. They told me that some of their neighbours were less delighted and had blamed Ukrainian forces for shelling their homes. But he insisted the incoming shells never hit the checkpoints or Russian artillery based right outside his house and so blamed the Russians for false flag attacks on civilians. He said the Russians behaved like pigs. They stole everything from all the empty houses before they ran away. The Russian guns were busy here. Their wooden ammunition boxes now stockpiled for winter fuel. And to the Ukrainian victors here, the spoils have been rich. The capture of Izium and the rout of Russia here has broken a key link in Putin's logistics chain in the battle for the East. Now you have the remarkable scene of a tank coming to collect I asked him if it had been a hard fight. Not really, he said. The latest Ukrainian successes may not be the beginning of the end of this war, but not even the Kremlin can deny that this chapter has been a very sorry tale for Russia. Now, Jake, it was a quite an eerie drive, at least an hour and a half through recently captured territory that uh, would have had uh, tens of thousands, potentially, of Russian troops in it to get to Izium. And there are concerns that there could be stay-at-home or stay-away forces, stay-behind, rather, forces hiding in the woodland and so on. And also the Ukrainians have said they've captured a lot of Russian troops. Jake? Sam, President Zelensky says while the counteroffensive is starting to slow, um, now Ukraine is going to look to liberate territory in, quote, new ways. What does that mean? I think we can expect to see a lot more partisan activity. We've been seeing that uh, over some weeks or even months in Kherson, which is a, a target of their southern counteroffensive that you and I have talked about 
uh, over the last couple of weeks. I think we could see a lot more of uh, special forces operations, a lot more NATO-style manoeuvre warfare that has proved successful in this Kharkiv offensive, trying to unpick the very conventional approach that the Russians have that they inherited from the Soviet era, Jake. The Pentagon is saying it's seeing a number of Russian forces crossing back over the border, back into Russia. What do we know about that? Well, there have been reports of this and indeed a bit of criticisms, even from Putin supporting elements within the Russian media of this uh, effectively a rout of Russian forces. It's not necessarily going to continue, but inevitably, particularly on this northern front, north of where I am in Kharkiv here, it's only about 25 or 30 miles to the Russian border. They are under pressure there. And it is a safe route out. If you can get across the border and you're a Russian soldier or somebody that cooperated with the incoming Russian forces and you're worried about your future, you're going to leg it across the border. And clearly uh, that is what the Pentagon is spotting. And there's some corroboration of that from Ukrainian forces too, Jake. Sam Kiley, thanks so much. Coming up next, subpoenas issued and phones seized. What to read into the recent rush of activity by the Justice Department as its January 6th investigation seems to expand. Kicking off our politics lead now, today the January 6th House Select Committee convened in person for the first time in weeks to try to decide whether to try to get testimony from Donald Trump and former Vice President Mike Pence as another public hearing looms and committee chairman Benny Thompson teases new, quote, significant information about the U.S. Secret Service. CNN Sarah Murray reports now on the January 6th probe and the Justice Department's burst of activity so close to election season. A flurry of investigative activity just ahead of the Justice Department's pre-election quiet period, putting its investigation into focus. The Justice Department and the FBI are all in, in pursuing what prosecutors and agents refer to as logical investigative steps. DOJ issuing dozens of subpoenas to current and former aides to Donald Trump involved in his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. As prosecutors seek more information about how different aspects of Trump's election reversal gambits fit together. Sources also telling CNN investigators seized a phone from Trump advisor Boris Epstein. This has been a countrywide steal, a countrywide operation by the left to defraud the American public and to steal this election from President Trump. Who allegedly helped coordinate Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election results. Also hit with new subpoenas, Dan Scavino, Trump's former deputy chief of staff, and Bill Stepien, 2020 campaign manager to the former president. There were two groups of family. We called them kind of my team and Rudy's team. I, I didn't mind being characterized as being part of Team Normal. What began as a probe into the U.S. Capitol attack, expanding with subpoenas seeking information on fraudulent electors, funding vehicles supporting Trump's attempt to overturn his defeat, and Trump lawyers, my goodness, this is how you win cases, pushing election fraud claims in court. There's investigations into the crimes of violence and rioting that happened on the grounds of the Capitol. There's uh, obstructing the Capitol, which is it's, you know, obstructing the, the work of Congress. There's potential campaign finance violations being investigated on account of pre- former President Trump's political action committee. DOJ also demanding subpoena targets hand over any information requested by the House committee investigating January 6th, whether those documents were produced or not. Assigned prosecutors are looking at possible attempts to obstruct investigators. As the select committee returns to Washington. We're having very productive deliberations today. And weighs whether to begin handing more information to DOJ. Now that the Department of Justice 
is being proactive in issuing subpoenas and other things. I think it's time for the committee to determine whether or not the information we gather uh, can be beneficial to their investigation. Now, we are learning a little bit more this afternoon about what led up to the search of the former president's residence at Mar-a-Lago. Jake, there is a court filing that gives us a look at that affidavit that led up to the search. It includes some newly unredacted details, including more detail about the classification markings that were on some of these documents ahead of the Mar-a-Lago search and just how sensitive the government programs behind them were, Jake. All right, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Let's bring in the former advisor to Vice President Pence, Olivia Troy, as well as white-collar criminal defense attorney Carolyn Polisi. Uh, Carolyn, your, your reaction here to the judge allowing more portions of this affidavit for the search warrant uh, at Mar-a-Lago to be unredacted? Yeah, Jake, I mean, I think it's, it's of a piece of what she's been trying to do all along. The public is entitled to know, you know, um, a certain amount of information. However, it does highlight sort of the catch-22 about even bringing a prosecution of this nature in the first place. This is about highly sensified, highly classified, top secret information. And in order to, you know, for the special master to look through that, they're going to have to get that clearance. And, and, you know, anybody that looks at the documents will have to get it as well. So, um, you know, I'm not surprised that more information is coming to light, but we definitely won't get to see everything anytime soon. And let me uh, stay with you because I want to ask you 30 subpoenas from the Justice Department for people in Trump's orbit in recent days. 30 it's been a year and a half since January 6th. Do you think this means the in- investigation is intensifying or, or even close to its conclusion, perhaps? Yeah, 30 subpoenas is a lot of subpoenas, Jake. You know, I would just note that I think Merrick Garland has been doing his work diligently. What he told us he was going to do about a year ago, putting his head down and just really following the facts and the law. He got a lot of flack uh, during the January 6th hearings when all of this new information to the public was coming out and people were saying, where is DOJ in all of this? I do think they're slightly behind the January 6th committee. No surprises there because a criminal investigation is going to take more time. They just have evidentiary hurdles to get over. Um, But it does appear that it is moving apace. And, and, you know, we'll see we'll see where these lead. Olivia, uh, Vice President Pence is coming out with a new book. It's going to come after the midterms. It's titled So Help Me God. Axios got the first look at the cover. On the back, uh, Pence writes this about January 6th. Quote, I was not afraid, but I was angry. I was angry at what I saw, how it desecrated the seed of our democracy and dishonored the patriotism of millions of our supporters who would never do such a thing here or anywhere else, unquote. Now, I guess I don't know what's inside the book, but... Do you think at any point Vice President Pence would express any anger at the individual who incited and directed the mob to go to the Capitol, Donald Trump? I mean, I would hope so. I think that if there's anyone he should be angry at, it certainly is a person that he was working under during four years of the Trump administration. And that person almost led to uh, the, the injury of his family and possibly his death. Um, So I hope that he goes into greater detail about what the circumstances were, how much pressure he was under, and the anger that day, not just of what was happening uh, that we all saw unfold, but the anger towards a president who behaved like a madman and exhibited a complete dereliction of duty in that moment. Olivia, the vice president has indicated he would contemplate cooperating with the January 6th committee. Uh, do you think that he ultimately will? Do you think there's any part of him that wants to testify? 
Look, I think he should. I think he he has got nothing to hide. He all he has to do is tell the truth. And I think that if the courageous women like Cassidy Hutchinson and Sarah Matthews can sit there before the committee publicly under oath and testify to what they saw and what the circumstances were uh, and the things that happened, certainly someone who was a leader in our country and who is possibly going to seek a presidential run in 2024 should have the courage to stand there and tell American people the truth about what happened. And Caroline, uh, Jeffrey Berman, uh, who will be on the lead tomorrow, he was fired as U.S. attorney uh, from the Southern District of New York by Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr. He has a new book, too, uh, detailing how Trump's Justice Department and Barr pressured the Southern District of New York to help the Trump administration politically. Uh, Take a listen uh, to Jeffrey Berman last night. Trump turned the department into his own personal law firm. He put in people who would do his bidding and they would, you know, uh, target Trump's political enemies and assist Trump's friends. And it was a disgrace. The uh, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Democrat Dick Durbin, tells CNN that he might call on Attorney General Barr and U.S. Attorney Berman to testify. Um, This looks pretty bad for Bill Barr. Yeah, Jake, there was a time in this country when uh, a clandestine meeting between Bill Clinton and Loretta Lynch on a tarmac was a scandal. Um, This just blows that out of the water. Look, it's part and parcel of the way Trump conducted his entire presidency. He really viewed himself more as a king, as a sovereign than as, you know, in the role of the president. Um, I'm not surprised that, you know, these bombshells are coming to light. I think uh, the question is in the deep, the devil's going to be in the details with respect to what specific conversations went on um, and just how, you know, norm defying they were. And Olivia, there's another uh, new Trump administration memoir coming out at the end of the month. This one by Peter Navarro, uh, a still loyal Trump former trade advisor. Um, The Forward, which is an independent Jewish news outlet, has an excerpt of the Navarro book detailing how top White House staff picked a Saturday to carry out a a sort of coup against Jared Kushner uh, because Kushner is Jewish. He observes the Sabbath and he wouldn't be at the White House that day. They wanted to replace Kushner with Steve Bannon, uh, and, and they blamed Kushner for the failing 2020 campaign. Uh, what do you think of this? Look, Peter Navarro was probably one of the most dangerous uh, people working in the Trump administration. I certainly worked with him, and he exhibited erratic behavior uh, numerous times. And I would say that I'm not surprised to hear this because this is kind of how these people manipulated the situations uh, to further their agendas, their more extremist agendas. And they certainly, I, I could see a situation where he was going to kind of push an agenda that he knew that Jared Kushner was not going to support and he would probably stand up against it. Olivia Troy, Caroline Polisi, uh, thanks so much to both of you. Join me this weekend for an in-depth CNN special report. It's called American Coup, the January 6th investigation. That's Sunday night at 9 o'clock Eastern, only here on CNN. Today, a whistleblower against Twitter said a Chinese government spy was on the social network's payroll. And that's not the only country that might have infiltrated the Twitter system. Stay with us. Just in, Ken Starr, best known for his investigation into President Bill Clinton, has died at the age of 76. Starr served as independent counsel investigating the Clinton presidency for years. His findings eventually led to the impeachment of President Clinton. 
Starr's career included stints as a judge, the U.S. Solicitor General, and the president of Baylor University. Two years ago, Starr also joined the legal team defending Donald Trump during his first impeachment trial. Starr's family says he died of complications from surgery. Coming um, <clears throat> Now we turn to our tech lead, a damning picture of Twitter's lack of security. The FBI thinks Twitter might have a Chinese government agent on its payroll, according to Senator Chuck Grassley, the Judiciary Committee's top Republican. As whistleblower and former head of security at Twitter, Peter Zatko, better known as Mudge Zatko, made his first public appearance since his remarkable allegations against his former employer, reported by CNN last month. CNN's Donnie O'Sullivan followed the shocking hearing that may make some informed users second-guess logging on. I'm here today because Twitter leadership is misleading the public, lawmakers, regulators, and even its own board of directors. Twitter's former head of security coming to Capitol Hill with a stark warning for lawmakers. It's not far-fetched to say that employee inside the company could take over the accounts of all of the senators in this room. Former Twitter executive Peter Zacco painting a picture of a company with huge security vulnerabilities that he says are a danger to national security and democracy. What I discovered when I joined Twitter was that this enormously influential company was over a decade behind industry security standards. Zacco was hired by Twitter in 2020 after teenagers hacked the accounts of some of the most famous people in the world. His testimony today coming a month after he first stepped forward as a whistleblower in exclusive interviews with CNN and The Washington Post. Ready? Yes. He says too many Twitter employees have access to the company's main controls, making it vulnerable to future attacks and a goldmine for espionage. What I did notice when we did know of a person inside acting on behalf of uh, a foreign interest as an unregistered agent, uh, it was extremely difficult to track the people. Last month, a former Twitter employee was convicted of spying for the Saudis. Today, it emerged, according to Zacco, that the FBI had informed Twitter that the company had a Chinese government spy on its payroll. They simply lacked the, the fundamental abilities to hunt for foreign intelligence agencies and expel them on their own. Telling lawmakers Twitter executives were driven by profit, no matter the security costs. I'm reminded of one conversation with an executive when I said... I am confident that we have a foreign agent, and their response was, well, since we already have one, what does it matter if we have more? Let's keep growing the office. As for regulators, Zatko says the FTC isn't up to the task. Honestly, I think the FTC is, is a little, you know, over their head. They've, they've compared to the size of the big tech companies and the challenge they have against them, they're left letting companies grade their own homework. And Jake, we haven't heard from any Twitter executives on the record since Zacco uh, went public about a month ago. But here is what Twitter is saying uh, in a statement tonight, saying uh, today's hearing only confirms that Zacco's allegations are riddled with inconsistencies and inaccuracies. Um, but Twitter not really answering the questions on the specifics. We asked, for instance, uh, if that alleged Chinese government spy is still Working at Twitter, Twitter did not uh, have an answer for us on that. Uh, this is all coming on the same day that Twitter shareholders have voted uh, for that Elon Musk $44 billion deal uh, to take over Twitter for that to go ahead. Musk, as you know, is trying to back out of that now. Uh, that is all going to trial in a few weeks uh, in, Del- in, in Delaware. Um, so a very uh, ro- roller coaster time for, for this company and Zacco playing into all of this. 
All right, Daniel Solomon, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, coming up next, the power of unions as more American workers go on strike. Stay with us. International aid unions across various sectors are showing up in full force. A freight railroad strike over labor disputes is expected as early as Friday. Teachers are on strike in Ridgefield, Washington. And in Minnesota, 15,000 nurses are in their second day on the picket line. CNN's Adrian Broadus is in St. Paul, Minnesota. Adrian, is this expected to go beyond the nurses' three-day planned strike? Jake, the answer is no. The nurses will return to work on Thursday morning, and those who are negotiating also hope to return on Thursday to the bargaining table with hospital administrators. Underpaid and understaffed, those are two of the main reasons why 15,000 nurses, including those you see behind us here at this hospital in front of uh, Children's Minnesota and St. Paul, are striking. We spoke with one nurse who says, yes, they want to have a salary increase, but it's about more than wages. She says they are short staffed and many of the nurses inside of the hospital have been asked to do more with less. Meanwhile, while the nurses are out here striking, there are temporary nurses inside caring for the patients. Also outside today, the state's governor, Tim Walls, showing his support. Listen in. And I will say this. None of you expected to get rich doing this, but you damn sure didn't take an oath of poverty to do it. Initially, the nurses requested a 30 percent wage increase that has decreased to 27 percent. Also, many are wondering what's happening to the patients. Some hospitals have rescheduled non-emergency appointments, and those temporary nurses are from all across the country working at hospitals like Children's Minnesota behind us. Jake? All right, Adrian Broadus of Minnesota, thanks so much. Then there's the looming freight rail strike and how it threatens the entire U.S. supply chain. That story's next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, Queen Elizabeth planned every single moment of her goodbye. And now we're learning new details about who will accompany the Queen's coffin as it moves from Buckingham Palace to the Palace of Westminster. Plus, the GOP is throwing punches at one of its own candidates in order to stop an election liar from winning a Senate Republican primary. But is it really about promoting the truth or beating the Democrats? And leading this hour, failure to act could lead to, quote, economic catastrophe. That's the warning from the most powerful business lobby about the looming strike targeting America's freight railroads. 60,000 union members, including conductors and engineers, are threatening to walk off the job if a deal is not reached by Friday. And if that happens, it would be the first nationwide rail strike in 30 years and could cause major disruptions to the already fragile supply chain. Ahead of Friday's deadline, freight companies have stopped accepting shipments of hazardous and sensitive materials. CNN's Pete Montine joins us now live outside of Penn Station in New York City. Pete, what are the workers asking for? And tell us about why the stakes are so high. It is almost hard to believe, Jake, that these workers simply want unpaid leave. Rail workers feel like they're on call 24-7. In the big impact here, we could see a major economic impact of about $2 billion a day if all of these rail workers go on strike. 
freight rail is responsible for moving everything from car parts to grain, fertilizer, a huge impact on farming. In the immediate impact, we're seeing Amtrak suspend some of its routes in fear of this rail worker strike impacting its rails. The rub here is that Amtrak relies 97% of its rails on freight rails. Another, the only 3% are rails owned by Amtrak itself. These union talks have been going on for a long time between trade groups and rail workers unions. There are two holdouts right now, and if those workers elect to go on strike, about a dozen other rail workers unions would also strike in solidarity. Jake, the impact here could be huge. The Biden administration really burning up the phones to try and avoid this. Friday at midnight is the deadline. Congress could intercede here. This is the last thing the Biden administration wants as the economy is on the bit of an upswing. This could have a big economic impact, Jake. So obviously, Pete, President Biden is calling rail unions. He's calling rail companies in an attempt to avert this shutdown. What what power does he have to affect the outcome? And, and is there a role for Congress? We know that many layers of the Biden administration are engaged on this from the Department of Labor to the Department of Transportation. The Biden administration can only influence things a little bit here. If Congress comes into play, it could put into, put into play a 60-day waiting period, renewing a waiting period, or could essentially force a deal on both sides. The Biden administration recommended big changes for these unions, including immediate pay raises, back pay from 2020, and bonus pay, although that is not satisfactory enough for every rail union involved here, Jake. Pete, tell our viewers what freight trains typically carry. We're talking about 30% of all the freight in the United States. We're talking about gas. We're talking about cars. The aviation industry relies on it. This would have a huge impact, not only getting things from ports that ship overseas to places more inland. This is going to be really big, Jake, if we come down to the wire here, the 11th hour. We're approaching that right now. All right. Pete Montine reporting live for us from Penn Station. Thanks so much. Industry stakeholders are warning of massive disaster scenarios if a shutdown does, in fact, happen. CNN business correspondent Rahel Solomon joins us again now. Rahel, what happens to the economy and to consumers if and when workers walk out on Friday? Well, Jake, the estimates are tens of millions of dollars in damages every single day. And certain industries, Jake, will be more sensitive and more vulnerable to this than others. So think, for example, the food industry. Think uh, spoiled food, lost food, lost crops. So that energy particularly vulnerable to a potential strike here. The automotive industry, we just heard Pete talk about how important this is for the automotive industry. They've already been dealing with the supply chain issues and disruptions for the last two years. So this is the last thing they would need. In fact, the Anderson Economic Group saying in a statement that uncertainty regarding railroad delivery could even uh, shut down some assembly plants if a strike went beyond a few days. And the energy industry, and think especially coal, you think the transport of coal and Jake, this couldn't come at a more worse time if you think about the time of year that we are as we head into the cooler months. The National Mining Association already putting out its own warning on that, saying that, look, these ongoing rail service issues uh, threatened cold deliveries, impeding the delivery of essential fuel as utilities work to shield consumers from soaring natural gas prices and build up stockpiles to ensure they have the fuel security needed for the winter. So this is just another issue that not just the business community has to worry about, but consumers. You have inflation that's still hovering at near 40-year highs, and you have potentially another disruption to the already fragile supply chain. 
And Raul, we, we talked about this earlier in the show, but we got new inflation data today showing that consumer prices remain painfully high for Americans, which led to a really rough day for the stock market. Yeah, in fact, it was the worst day for the Dow since June of 2020, for the Dow since June of 2020 there. So historically bad day. But it wasn't just the Dow. It was all of the major averages. The S&P closed off 4.3 percent. The Nasdaq, the worst among them, closed off 5.1 percent. And what's happening here, Jake, is we got that report this morning that showed that inflation, while energy was declining, and a lot of other categories, Jake, inflation was still accelerating, categories like shelter, categories like food. And what this means heading into next week's Fed meeting is that the Fed will likely be more aggressive as it tries to cool spending, as it tries to cool inflation, and not just perhaps next meeting next week, but perhaps in the meetings to come. And that's what investors were responding to today. It was a, it was a really ugly day. Rahel Solomon, thanks so much. Even though the new economic data shows inflation remains stubbornly high, President Biden celebrated the passage of his sweeping economic and climate legislation, which he calls the Inflation Reduction Act. CNN's Caitlin Collins now takes a look at the irony of the timing of Biden's victory lap today. Welcome to the White House, everybody. It was a $430 billion victory lap at the White House today. This is what it looks like when the American government works for the people. In front of thousands, President Biden touted the climate, energy, and health care bill he signed into law last month as game-changing. This law is going to make a big difference for middle-class and working-class families. With two months to go before the crucial midterm elections, Biden and top Democrats praised the bill as proof they can get things done while highlighting how Republicans voted against it. In the end, every single public voted against this historic law. What are the MAGA Republicans doing over in the Capitol today? Introducing national bans on abortion. But only hours before James Taylor serenaded the crowd celebrating the Inflation Reduction Act. I've seen fire and I've seen A new inflation report showed consumer prices remain hotter than expected. His number one economic priority is to deal with inflation. Is there more work to be done? Absolutely. In August, prices rose 8.3 percent from a year earlier, compared to 8.5 percent in July, meaning that while drivers may be feeling relief at the pump with gas prices going down, rent, health care, restaurant meals and furniture all remained high. A core inflation index that doesn't include food or fuel also rose sharply, potentially cementing another interest rate hike from the Federal Reserve. The state of the economy weighing on Biden's approval ratings, as First Lady Jill Biden told NBC News they haven't yet discussed a 2024 run. Not yet. We've been a little bit too busy. <laughs> Not yet, but uh, I'm sure it'll be a discussion. Look at all Joe has done. He has kept true to what he said he would do. And uh, so I think he just needs to keep going. Now, Jake, obviously, Wall Street was not happy with that new inflation report either today. As President Biden was speaking about the Inflation Reduction Act, you saw the Dow dropping 1,200 points as markets were closing. I should note, of course, this is a big concern for Democrats, many of them who are here in attendance today and the effect it's going to have on the midterm elections come November. President Biden was asked by a reporter as he was leaving, Jake, if he is confident that Democrats will be able to hold on to the House. He said yes. All right, Caitlin Collins of the White House, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, a look at the special master that Donald Trump's lawyers and the Justice Department have said would be acceptable, the special master candidate. Then, just miles down the road from the site of the Sandy Hook school massacre, some of the families who lost their kids 
are trying once again to stop conspiracy theorist Alex Jones from spreading lies. Stay with us. Our politics lead a rare agreement between the Justice Department and Donald Trump's legal team, the two sides potentially, potentially approving one person to serve as the special master in the federal investigation into Donald Trump's handling of classified documents. Let's bring in CNN's Tom Foreman. Tom, what do we know about the role of the special master and whom might be picked to serve that role? Well, we know that the role is to serve as a third-party, unaffiliated attorney who would oversee part of a case. In this case, to consider these documents that are being reviewed by the Department of Justice taken from Mar-a-Lago. What are they looking for? To see, is this really something they have a right to, or is there possibly privileged material there that the former president had a right to keep to himself? So the Department of Justice said, here are two good uh, former judges who could help out. Barbara Jones, Thomas Griffith, both retired, both familiar with sensitive cases like this, matters of privilege. Team Trump said, no, we don't like them. But then they said, What about Raymond Deary? Team Trump said this. Who is Raymond Deary? Importantly, he is someone that the Justice Department said they could accept. A New York federal judge from 1986 to 2011, he was nominated by Ronald Reagan. He's now technically retired, but serving as a senior judge on the New York Federal District Court. He also served on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the FISA Court, which is a secret court tasked with approving actions to look into possible spying in this country. In that role, he was one of the judges who approved FBI DOJ requests to surveil Carter Page in 2016 in the Russia election interference probe. Carter Page, a foreign policy advisor to the Donald Trump campaign. In this matter, Donald Trump became very upset about what the FISA court was up to and has often criticized about the FISA court. So it's rather surprising that his team is now saying Deary would be okay in this role. And yet that's what they've done, Jake. Odd. So anyway, the the two sides seem to agree on this candidate. Does that mean it's a done deal? No, because the judge still has to approve it. And there are other questions, including the calendar, for example. Look, we're right here on the 13th. The Department of Justice says... If you get this person in place and you launch right into this, we'd like to see about five weeks to have it done. So let's say by October 17th, it's all done with the review and we're back on track. Team Trump is saying, no, 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 that won't do at all. We are at the 13th here, but we want 90 days. So get rid of the rest of September, all of October, all of November, and maybe be done with the special master somewhere around the 13th of December. That's a big difference, Jake. And it fits very much into one of the complaints from many people in prosecution when dealing with Team Trump, that they're always looking for delays, delays, delays. That's a big delay compared to what justice wants. Sure. Tom Foreman, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN counterterrorism analyst and former top FBI official Phil Mudd. Phil, are you surprised that the Justice Department and and Trump's legal team uh, seem to have been able to come to some sort of an agreement on a potential candidate to serve as special master. Not really, because I think DOJ, Department of Justice, has an opportunity here. Let's, let's put the documents into two categories. And God forgive, forgive me, let, let's make you the special master. Okay. Category one, you've yes. got information between the president and a legal advisor. Maybe Rudy Giuliani. Obviously, that might be privileged. You've got a conversation between the president and a member of the family, a president and the secretary of state. One basket, not hard to figure out. Basket two in my old turf, something that says top secret on the top that has nothing to do with the president or his advisors and that has to do maybe with the intercept of a communication from an Iranian nuclear facility or a a North Korean nuclear facility. To me, as a national security professional, figuring out 
what's privileged and what's national security is a good debate on TV, but in terms of differentiating the documents, I don't think it's that hard, Jake. Okay, but the reason I would never be made a special master among <laughs> among many is that I don't have security clearance. I don't have top security clearance. Would Judge Deary, because he was on the FISA court, already have that level of approval? Yes, I spoke to the FISA court multiple times when I was at both the CIA and the FBI. They would have not only the approval to look at those documents, but when I say that it's not that hard to differentiate, they would have experience looking at the documents to determine very quickly and I'm talking about a matter of minutes. This isn't very complicated to look at the documents and say, this clearly is a personal conversation related to the Oval Office, and this clearly is something collected by the CIA. In my world, I know it's complicated on TV. In my world, this is not even in the same universe. It's not that hard. I don't want to dive too much into the minutia of this, but, but there was an FBI uh, official who was reprimanded and, I believe, punished, and maybe even legally charged, if memory serves, for not including all the information uh, relevant to that Carter Page FISA yes, warrant. Yes. Um, so I find it surprising, and I wonder if you do, uh, that the Trump team would sign off on that, or maybe they just think, well, this, look, the judge was misled uh, by the FBI. Ufa, um, this is a tough one as a, as a guy who worked at the FBI. The Carter Page FISA uh, pro process, that is the process to look at Carter Page's emails, yeah. as we learned over the years, was fundamentally flawed. So if you're at the, at, 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 on Trump team, you might look at that and say, anybody who looked at that process, a judge, for example, knows that was fundamentally flawed. They're going to side with us. Let's go to the other side, the oh, Department they, of oh, Justice. They owe us yeah. one. They owe or us one. Yeah. they know that they got worked by the Department of Justice. Department of Justice might look at this as I would if I were back there and say, look, we didn't handle that well. If we're going to put out everybody who looks at that and says that was flawed, we're going to eliminate everybody in the legal process because anybody looking at the Carter Page FISA is going to say that didn't work out well. I want to ask you about the, the Justice Department's investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Yeah. Um, officials have uh, issued more than 30 subpoenas yeah. in recent days to Trump aides. What do you make of that? That seems a major escalation. Uh, let's do the boring part and then we'll finish with the fun part. The boring part is if you're at the FBI, you want to do timelines. I want to know everything that happened on January 5th, January 4th, the month before. The only way you can do that is look at what people say, that's interviews, and obviously look at phone records. Who called whom? Who called Kevin McCarthy? Who called the White House? So you're collating all that information to come up with a factual timeline. Now let's go to the fun part. I walk into an interview with someone who was at the White House who said, I don't really remember any conversations with the Congress at that, in that time frame, and you got their phone that indicates they had 12 conversations right. that day. Yeah. So there's the boring part, I want to put together the facts, and the more interesting part, I want to ensure that when I interview somebody, they don't lie because I got their phone and I know they talked to Kevin McCarthy. So you think it's all of it? Yes, yes, absolutely. Very interesting. Phil Mudd, thanks, thanks so much. Good to see you as always. And join me this weekend for an in-depth CNN special report, American Coup, the January 6th investigation. That's Sunday night at 9 Eastern, only here on CNN. Coming up, the top Republican in the Senate just poured a bucket of cold water on Republican Senator Lindsey Graham's new federal abortion ban proposal. Stay with us. In our politics lead, candidates who support and echo Trump's baseless lies about the 2020 election have proven to be quite popular in Republican primary races this year. According to a new analysis from 538, in the House... 118 election deniers and eight election doubters 
have at least a 95% chance of winning in November, unquote, which would in all likelihood make them a majority of the House Republican conference in the next Congress. Today, the primary season finally wraps up just eight weeks away from the general election in New Hampshire. All eyes are on a pair of races there, pitting establishment Republican candidates against more Trumpy ones who lie about the 2020 election. CNN's Athena Jones is following all of this for us. Athena, in New Hampshire's first congressional district, two Republicans who both work for Trump are squaring off. Tell us about that one. Hi, Jake. That's right. So Caroline Levitt and Matt Mowers are the frontrunners in what's a kind of crowded field. Both work for Trump. Both are running on his agenda. And so the differences here are really more a matter of style. Levitt is Trumpier, so she's uh, she's embraced being aggressive and abrasive, sort of mimicking some of the traits that have come to define Trump politically. She is an election an election denier. She's embraced the uh, Trump's lies that the 2020 election was stolen. And recently, she was asked if she would vote to impeach Biden, and she said unequivocally yes. On the other side, you have Matt Mowers, who's considered more measured, more cautious. He has said he has confidence, at least in New Hampshire's administration of the election. And when he was asked about impeaching Biden recently, he said he'd want to see hearings first. And he's being backed by the two top House Republicans, uh, Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise. And uh, polls right now show the race as deadlocked. But uh, this late August poll showed a lot of people were undecided. So more than a quarter, 26 percent were undecided. So the big question with that race is which way will voters go? Will they go with the more establishment type or will they go with the candidate more uh, Trumpy, more the Trumpier? candidate like Levitt. Uh, my colleague Dan Marica spoke with Fergus Cullen, who's a, a former state GOP chair, and he said if Levitt wins the nomination, he's not going to vote for her because you know, New Hampshire doesn't need another uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene type. Jake. Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan, she was elected by just over 1,000 votes in 2016. Knowing that she could be vulnerable, the uh, Democrats are wading into the Republican primary. Tell us what they're doing. Right. That is she's considered one of the most vulnerable seats in the Senate. And and this is something we've seen in several races across the country. Democrats spending to try to pick their opponent. They're trying to tamp down support for the more conventional, more centrist, more establishment uh, GOP candidates in hopes of, 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 of helping the more extreme far right ones win and hoping that if they do so, they'll be easier to beat uh, come November. That is, of course, the hope. Uh, some say that they're, you know, they're, they're playing with fire here. So how, near, how, near, how, here you have the Senate Majority Pack, which is a Democratic group, uh, having poured $3 million into an ad attacking Morse, Chuck Morse, in this race against Don Bulldog. Bulldog, of course, being the Trumpier uh, candidate. Take a listen to that ad. Mitch McConnell's Washington establishment is going all in for Chuck Morse, and it's no surprise. Chuck Morse took more lobbyist money than any other New Hampshire state senator. Lobbyists are even running his campaign. Another sleazy politician. Uh, polling is showing Bulldog in the lead here, but again, we just have to wait and see uh, who comes out on top in this race. It's, uh, it's a big establishment versus the Trump candidates. All right, okay. Athena Jones, thanks so much. Let's discuss. I, I, I want to start with you as the, our resident pollster. Again, Democrats are playing with fire. Like, the, the, the Trumpier candidate is not a guarantee that the Democrat can win in November. And look, politics ain't beanbag, right? Sure. You know, they, if they think that this is going to give them an upper hand in winning a seat, that's the argument the Democrats are making. But I think they are playing with fire in a year where Republicans are so favored. I mean, this is, I, I think it's also the case that you have a lot of Democrats that have a very... They, they view taking out Republicans as this moral imperative, right, that Republicans are this threat to democracy. And yet, 
if you are doing things to help get Republicans elected, uh, at least in a primary, who hold these contrary views, I don't think you get to have that kind of uh, moral self, moral self, self-righteous. Yeah, the, the, I, look, I, I get it. Politics <laughs> is tough. You want to win. You want to do what it takes to, to get your candidate ahead. But I, I think they're playing with fire. You don't think this is playing with fire? I do think it's playing with fire. Okay. And the bigger problem is that it's not always effective, right? If you look at the Democrats' track record of uh, in trying to bump up the MAGA candidates, they've lost more than they've won in doing so. And the reason isn't really their fault. It's that the base of the Republican Party is pretty Trumpy. Um, so what's interesting in New Hampshire in particular is that you have... Um, you know, McConnell's pack obviously bumping the establishment candidate. You have the Democrats bumping the MAGA candidate. So what it seems to me is that they are both agreeing on the fact that MAGA candidates lose in the general election. Uh, Abby, let, let, uh, let's look at this analysis from 538 of uh, all the election liars and Republican races showed that they could very well make up a majority of the Republican conference uh, in the next Congress. And Republicans could actually, as we know, uh, win the House. Yeah, I mean, that's the reality. This is a Republican Party that is defined right now by uh, this fiction invented by former President Trump that he won the election. And you don't take my word for it. I mean, you just read the numbers. Uh, it's it's what the House Republican conference is going to look like pretty much no matter what, because so many of these districts are gerrymandered to the hilt. Uh, it's very easy to just win it if you have an R next to your name. I also think what's really interesting to me about uh, this debate about, you know, boosting the MAGA candidates so you can win when you look at the MAGA candidates, they are polling at like 40-something percent, 45 percent. I mean, it's almost like a default number of Republicans are, are saying yes to those candidates. So Democrats are creating an environment in which the difference between their candidate and the other candidate is like two or three points. Yeah. It's not like a huge advantage that they're getting. And that is, I mean, it's telling on both sides. It's a huge risk on the Democratic side. But it also is very telling that the Republican Party, by and large, Doug Mastriano, for example, in Pennsylvania, you know, he is viewed as a far right candidate, but he is, you know, in the game, proverbially speaking, in a very swingy state. And, and like just to say about Mastriano, the gubernatorial Republican candidate in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, you don't vote for secretary of state. The governor appoints, appoints the him. person. Yeah. So you could have a liar about the election appointing a liar about the election to be in charge of Pennsylvania's election. And I'm glad you brought that up because those are the races that really when looking at to the next election, we really should be focused on because as good as this analysis was, we already know that over 100 Republicans voted to sustain objections to the last election in the House. A lot of this really is a function of redistricting and gerrymandering. But when you look at the state level officials, all it takes is, like you said, a Pennsylvania, a Doug Mastriano, one position in Michigan or in Arizona. And what we see here, when you drill down to that level, is that a number of these candidates are doing pretty well. For example, Mark Fincham in Arizona is outraising the Democrat there for Secretary of State. Why did the system hold last time? Because just a few, a handful of Republicans said no. Brad Raffensperger in Georgia, Rusty Bowers in Arizona... Um, and then in Michigan, of course, that was a whole nother mess yeah. there. Those are Democrats. But again, 
all it would take is a few of these and positions. And for all the, the talk on the Democratic side about democracy, as you pointed out, Republicans are fired up about these election-related positions, the secretaries of state, and, and further down, even more local than that. Democrats have to figure out how to energize their supporters actually around these elections around the country. Otherwise, they're going to find themselves in the position that they're in in some states like Arizona critically important state, but where you have a governor, potentially a, a gubernatorial nominee, potential secretary of state nominee, both election deniers. T uh, today, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham introduced a bill that would ban abortions nationwide after 15 weeks. Uh, it's a move many abortion rights proponents have said was going to come no matter what if the Republicans regained the White House and Congress. Um, listen to uh, Senator Graham. I've been consistent. I think states should decide the issue of marriage and states should decide the issue of abortion. I have respect for South Carolina. South Carolina voters here, I trust to define marriage and to deal with the issue of abortion. Except that was him in August. I did a little switcheroo on you there. That was him in August. Uh, now it's September uh, and he's introducing a nationwide ban, 15 weeks. It's politically speaking, I think unbelievably stupid for somebody who in theory wants Republicans to take back the Senate in November. I mean, all you need to look is at the Kansas abortion ballot um, results, right? And you have to think that the majority of states in America are not more conservative than Kansas. Um, so there's that. There's a reason why candidates like Blake Masters are spending the last month erasing their abortion records from their websites and putting their wives in ads with them to show that, hey, I'm not such a bad guy. It's because this is not a great issue for Republicans right now. So Lindsey Graham should know that as well as anybody. I'm, I'm not really sure what he's doing. Well, what is he doing? Yeah, there, there's a lot of pressure and debate right now within Republican circles of, on one hand, those who say, look, inflation is the number one issue. Let's just talk about that. And another big portion of the party that says Roe has been overturned. Why would we not do something on this? And so you're seeing that tension sort of materialize in this piece of legislation where uh, most polls that I've seen show that a 15-week ban is not terribly unpopular. The problem a lot of Republicans are facing is, one, those who would take that kind of a position that is more, you know, closer to the mainstream, they don't want to talk about abortion at all. Right. The Republican candidates who do want to talk about abortion for them, 15 weeks actually isn't necessarily where they want to put the line. And so that's the political pickle Republicans find I think find it's also very in. problematic for Republicans that they had argued for decades that this should be a state's rights issue. And now all of a sudden it's a national issue. I think voters are looking at that and they're saying, can we trust you when you, all of a sudden you make this switcheroo when Roe is gone? I think that's what Democrats are benefiting from is that Voters who previously were like, this is settled law, we don't need to worry about this, mm -hmm. now they, they feel a sense of insecurity about this issue. Right after Roe was overturned, Democrats were in fact pushing this, like, this is the next step, this is the camel's nose under the tent, they're going to go for a federal abortion ban, and many of the Republicans who were most vulnerable said, no, this is fundamentally just a state's rights issue, and we are now releasing this issue back to the states and back to the people to decide. That was the talking point, and you heard that reflected by Lindsey Graham himself now, which is different from Lindsey Graham today. So while what Kristen says is absolutely true, if you look at the polling, the majority of the people don't want one extreme or the other. They do believe there should be some kind of limits, but they don't want the federal government in their health care decisions. The one man other than Donald Trump who's probably more personally respons responsible for Roe being overturned, uh, Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell, he's pouring cold water uh, on this proposal. He says, no, I think... Uh, my members, my Republican senators, 
uh, want to leave it up to the states. He, he's not on board. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's because, again, he's one of those ones that says, I want to talk about inflation. I want to right. talk about cost of living. I want to talk about the issues I want to talk about where we're winning else. by a significant margin, not an issue like abortion where voters have said, we don't know if we trust Republicans right now. All right. Thanks one and all for being here. Appreciate it. New details about which members of the royal family we'll see tomorrow accompanying the Queen's casket as the public prepares to say goodbye. We're back with our world lead. Queen Elizabeth's coffin is back at Buckingham Palace after making the journey from Scotland earlier today. Tomorrow there will be a procession in the streets of London as the Queen's coffin moves to Westminster Hall where she will lie in state for four days before her funeral. CNN Royals correspondent Max Foster is live right now outside Buckingham Palace. Max, you have some brand new details about what we're going to see tomorrow. Yeah, so currently the whole family, uh, the children, grandchildren of the monarch and their spouses are in Buckingham Palace. You can see, or you might be able to see, the royal standard is flying above the palace, signifying that the king is in residence. And the, um, the coffin is lying in one of the stately rooms there, and there's a vigil. Uh, so there was a short service there earlier on when the coffin arrived at Buckingham Palace, and the family are having their time there to pay their respects again. And uh, crucially, the household staff. This is their moment tonight to pay their respects. And then tomorrow, as I understand it, the procession will leave these gates and it'll be a long, slow procession with full cavalry, with the state hearse. Uh, But I've been told that the uh, direct members of the family will be walking behind the coffin. So the children, the grandchildren of the monarch, including Princes William and Harry, and then they'll be followed in cars by the spouses, uh, Meghan, uh, Kate, uh, the Princess of Wales, uh, the Queen Consort as well, uh, travelling behind. And there's going to be full cavalry. So I think this is going to be quite a spectacular scene, but quite a solemn scene as well, uh, because there's going to be silence. We're used to so much music and sound around these processions but this one will be will look like that but it won't sound like that and i think that's going to be quite poignant and we saw uh, today how the hearse was traveling around london we learned today that the hearse was designed by the palace and overseen by the queen so that hearse we saw today is exactly how the queen wanted it and she wanted as many people as possible to see the coffin which is why you see all that glass and even a light on the roof of the hearse and this really speaks, Jake, I think, to one of the Queen's mantras, the, were, which was that you had to be seen to be believed, why she wore those bright colours whenever she was out in public. But, you know, the, the dark side of this is you have to be seen to be believed to be dead as well. And I think that was the message the Queen uh, was giving out when she designed this hearse. All right, Max Foster outside Buckingham Palace, thank you so much. There are already warnings it could be a bad flu season this year. So should you get your flu shot at the same time, as the new COVID booster shot? We'll talk to a doctor next. In our health lead, monkeypox has taken the life of one individual here in the United States, becoming the first known death from this virus in America. Officials say a Los Angeles County resident had a severely weakened immune system and was hospitalized. This, as U.S. confirmed cases, constitute now more than 22,000, with California reporting the most, 4,300, according to data from the CDC. Let's bring in Dr. Peter Hotez. Help us understand how this person died from monkeypox. Are deaths from this virus rare? 
They're not that rare, Jake. I mean, we have to remember monkeypox is still a serious disease. I mean, it's not like smallpox that causes 30% mortality, but it's still significant. And we saw about 1% in Nigeria. It's not been that high. There have been about 20 deaths so far, but especially if you're immunocompromised. And because of the population that monkeypox is affecting, um, there's a high percentage of those who are HIV positive and therefore could have profound, be profoundly immunocompromised. We don't know that was the reason for the death in Los Angeles or the death in Texas as well, but it's a reminder that doctors should be faster on the draw in terms of starting antiviral therapy. It's looking like the tecoveramet, that antiviral drug, is working quite well, and so I think we're, we're making it too difficult to for patients to get access to it and need to step that up. I know there's a lot of concern about the stigma of monkeypox, and I wonder, the name monkeypox is horrible. It's a horrible name. Is there any discussions about renaming it? The WHO, is, the World Health Organization, has proposed just to call it MPX, which is going to be renamed, uh, pronounced MPOX. So, so that's a possibility. It isn't official yet, but that's what we're moving for. And I think you're right. It does conjure up um, some racist images coming out of the African continent. So if we can avoid that, I think that's better. But the bottom line is people need to seek treatment and people need to get vaccinated. I think the numbers of monkeypox are starting to go down now, and, um, but, and part of that is changes in behavior. But also we're reaching now several hundred thousand people who've gotten vaccinated. So the hope is that continues. But access among black and brown communities for the vaccine is still not what it needs to be. So we've got to work harder on that. And also behavior, right? The behavioral issues don't, if you're having sex with multiple male partners, you're at the highest risk. That's right. The, the behavior change is a big thing. So cutting down the number of partners, having sex with people you know, common sense, things like that, I think is also making a big difference. Let's turn to COVID. Uh, there are these new boosters. Uh, they've been available for a little over a week. Uh, who should get them? Well, any, anyone who's eligible. So, And there are three reasons why. The first is that the boosters, the mRNA boosters in general, are not holding up as well as we'd like in terms of preventing hospitalizations once you're more than out four or five months from your last booster. So now's the time to get a booster if you haven't been boosted in a while. The second reason is this new booster targets both the original lineage that came out of central China and the BA5 variant, which subvariant, which is the predominant one still. It's starting to go down now, but it's still predominant. So that's the second reason. The third reason is we don't know what's coming later this winter. Many of us are expecting another big COVID uh, wave variant to be determined. And by having this new booster that gives you two shots on goal, one against the original lineage, the other against BA5, that we don't know if the next one coming down the pike is going to look more like BA5 or the original lineage. And this kind of hedges bets uh, to make it more likely that you'll do better coming this winter. Who is eligible for this new booster for, for COVID and uh, should they get it with the flu shot too? So anyone over the age of 12 can get the, the Pfizer booster and anyone over 18 get the, the Moderna booster. They're, they're pretty equivalent. I think it's a good idea to get your flu shot at the same time. So if you go to the pharmacy, um, it's a good idea to get both just because you remember it and you, and you don't forget to get it. And we do think this is going to be a bad flu season. There are those who think that, um, that if you get it too early, it, the effects start to wear off. And the worst part of flu season is December and January. So the Centers for Disease Control goes back and forth about when to, uh, when to get boosted. I just got my booster thinking I'm traveling a lot. Uh, going to be exposed to flu in the fall. Uh, and, and that's the rationale for doing that now. All right, Dr. Peter Hotes, thanks so much. Good to see you. What will it take to stop conspiracy theorist Alex Jones from spreading his damaging 
hideous lies about the Sandy Hook massacre. Well, his second trial is underway, and there's already fireworks. Stay with us. In our national lead now, just miles from the site of the 2012 school shooting, right-wing conspiracy theorist Alex Jones is on trial and will face eight Sandy Hook families. This is Jones' second time in court for his Hideous, money-making crusade to spread disinformation about the massacre, which obviously led grieving families to become the target of online harassment and death threats. Let's bring in CNN's Drew Griffin. Drew, during much of the last trial, Alex Jones watched from afar, not in person. Was he there to face the families today? He was not there today, Jake, but we're told he will testify in this trial Like the jury in Texas, this jury is just deciding how much Alex Jones is going to have to pay. The judge already deciding or declaring Jones and his company liable for damages to the plaintiffs for calling that shooting a hoax across his media empire and saying that no one died. The victim's families who were accused by Jones of being crisis actors and faking the entire shooting as part of Jones's view, a plot to pass gun restrictions actually were re-victimized by Jones' followers who harassed them, threatened them, one even faced death threats. This trial is meant to determine how much in damages Jones should pay for that. As such, the plaintiffs first must show how much damage was done, and their first witness was a hardened FBI agent who has joined the families in this lawsuit against Jones. His name is Bill Aldenberg. And he responded to Sandy Hook Elementary School the morning of that massacre back in December 2012. Nearly 10 years later, Jake, he could barely make it through telling the jury what he saw. Our our senses were, I mean, that is like, it it overwhelms your senses. I don't know. I don't know what I heard. I just know that what I saw, it overwhelms your senses. It's frigging horrible. Jake, the family's attorney repeatedly told jurors how many times and for how long Alex Jones had told his followers the Sandy Hook massacre was fake, which made this next exchange especially poignant. Was what you saw in that school fake? No, no. No, sir. Was it synthetic? No, sir. No, sir. See any actors that day, Bill? No. Those children real? It's awful. It's awful. It's awful. Had to take several breaks. A second uh, witness, a sister of school teacher Vicki Soto, equally emotional. In fact, one juror was even seen crying during her testimony. In his opening statements today, Jones' attorney, twice admonished by the judge for trying to bring politics into this trial, insinuating the plaintiffs were on a political mission to financially destroy Jones just to silence him. The judge would have none of it, but also said, Jake, it's going to be difficult to keep Alex Jones in control when he does testify. Jones already facing $50 million judgment in Texas that he's appealing. That was for one family. This trial, as you said, Jake, represents eight. We are expecting it to go for four weeks. All right, Drew Griffin, thank you so much. Appreciate it. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead from whence you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer 
right next door in a place I like to call the Situation Room. I will see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.